Hello and welcome to this episode of HBCU. My guest today graduated from Florida A&M University. Please help me welcome Dr. Mark Griffin. Dr. Griffin, welcome to the show. I'm glad to have you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited about sharing with you uh, about the greatest institution on planet Earth. <laughs> oh, we're excited to hear all about it as well. So uh, let's start with just tell me, how did you select Florida A&M as your uh, college of choice? Well, interestingly enough, I'm from Tallahassee, so I, okay. I was born and raised right there in, in the city. And uh, even from a child growing up, I, I always looked at myself as being a part of FAMU. Um, I can remember even from my home growing up, hearing the band um, as they would practice, uh, going to all the football games, the homecoming um, parades. And so uh, it was just a natural progression for me. Uh, as well as my siblings, we all went to FAMU because when you're from Tallahassee, there's no other place uh, <laughs> that you would want to be. And so it was a natural progression and um, a simple decision, but the best decision I, I could have ever made. So take me back to your, your freshman year. Uh, what was it like when you first set foot on the campus of FAMU and what was your freshman year like there? Well, interestingly enough, I actually came out of high school a year early, so I was dually enrolled as not only a, a freshman at FAMU, but as a high school senior. So I actually missed my um, senior year in high school. So I was, you know, a year um, younger than most of the freshmen. It was, it was a great experience. Um, literally being from Tallahassee, seeing um, literally the, the, the nation and, and in some cases the world come um, to the campus. Uh, I met so many people from places like Los Angeles, New York, Detroit, Chicago, Dallas, even friends from places like Nigeria. And so uh, it was a very rewarding experience just to be able to meet so many different people um, from so many different walks of life. And it was truly um, a family environment. And so it was it was really uh, it was an eye opener, uh, but it was one that that I really um, enjoyed and, and wouldn't wouldn't trade anything for it. Uh, did you have any challenges there uh, while you were attending school? Um, academically, not really. I was always a pretty good student. My mom and dad made sure I got my lesson. And so um, not really. I think one of the uh, things about Florida and them, you know, a lot of times um, HBCUs uh, developed the reputation of being, as some people call them, um, party schools. Um, but what I found at FAMU was a, a place with a lot of diversity in, in terms of um, if you wanted a great social life, it was there. If you wanted a, a great academic platform, it was there. And so for me, I, it was always academics first. Yeah. And so um, whenever people would see me on the set, which was quite often, it was only after I'd gotten my studies done. And so for me, it was it was not a big, um, a tough transition. We had professors that really... Um, valued our education. They, they made sure we knew how important it was to them um, that we got a good education, which was the, the main reason why we were there. Were there any, um, you know, professors or staff members that uh, mentored you while you were there? Uh, quite a few, quite a few. And I, I think they, um, they were more like parents, if you will, to those of us who needed that type of a figure. Um, they really cared about our education. In fact, I remember um, in my freshman year, b before I pledged uh, Kappa, which of course, as you and I know, the best fraternity in the world. Absolutely. Uh, before I pledged <laughs> Kappa, 
Um, I, um, the semester before I pledged cap, I had a full point on grade point average. And uh, I, I took a bowling class, true story, I took a bowling class and I could not bowl. I mean, I was just a horrible bowler. <laughs> and the bowling professor, um, uh, the late Hansel Tooks, he told me, he said, I don't want to ruin your perfect uh, 4.0, so I'm going to give you 10 rolls of the bowling ball. If you get one strike, um, I'm going to give you an A in this class so that you, I can maintain your perfect 4.0. Um, after that semester, I had a 3.98. I couldn't <laughs> bowl one strike. Uh, and so I got to be in that class. And so when I pledged cap, I had a 3.98 uh, grade point average and um, graduated with honors. And so Really, it was because of the, the care and the concern that professors had for students like me um, that I was able to be successful. Yeah. So talk to me about uh, Greek life uh, at Florida A&M. What was Greek life like? And the, the, as you stated, you, you you made the best decision in the world, joined, joined the greatest fraternity in the world. So uh, tell my, share with my viewers <laughs> what that's like on the campus. Absolutely. I pledged pledge cap. I'm going to date myself a little bit, but I pledged cap in fall of 1979. And on, on most college campuses, different fraternities have different um, reputations as, as it relates to who runs the yard, if you will. And for us, we always felt that we ran the yard. Um, and so it was a great experience. In fact, at that time, uh, the Kappas were just coming back on the yard from a suspension along with Omega Sci-Fi. So you have the Kappas and the Qs yeah. just coming back on the yard, fall of 79. And so the, the hype and the hoopla, was it was literally off the chain. And so I was blessed to pray, pledge with 15 other uh, brothers. Um, 14 of us are still living and we still um, we get together periodically. It was a great experience. Um, just the whole idea of bonding with with brothers, and as you know, back in those days, um, we really pledged. Um, yeah. We pledged about six weeks officially, and there was some additional unofficial time. But one of the best experiences of my life, I learned a lot about what I could and could not um, endure and accomplish, and and through it all, um, still was able to maintain a pretty decent um, grade point average even by pledging. Um, great experience again, um, meeting guys from all over. Um, the nation. And uh, again, we stay in touch even even to this day. Again, yeah. I wouldn't trade it for the world. So talk to me about homecoming. What is homecoming like at uh, FAMU? <laughs> oh, now it, it's, it's a little different now, but back then it was, it was, uh, it was just absolutely amazing. You knew a homecoming um, week was coming up and you as a student, you knew that all the alumni were coming home and there were all kind of, um, um, activities and contests, and there was always going to be music, um, food, and of course, um, fam, you had the most beautiful women of any college or university anywhere um, in, in the world. And so just seeing all the ladies and the brothers, and even though um, I was a Kappa, all of us, we got along with all the Divine Nine, and it was just, it was just one big family. Um, and you didn't care what time it was, you didn't care um, what was going on, you were just with your family during homecoming weekend and having um, the Martin 100, um, the football team, which during um, our our time, you know, some they had some good years, but primarily, you know, it was the band that was the focal point. And so um, just a great experience. Um, it was just one big family. Um, and again, um, memories that I, I, will, I will always cherish. So you mentioned the Martin uh, 100. So 
you know, bands are a big deal uh, with HBCUs. So how did the March in 100 play into that entire HBCU experience? Oh, they were they were the focal point uh, of, of FAMU then, as I really think they still are now. And just the the, the spirit of excellence in which they perform, um, just the pride, whether you are watching them on the football field or whether you're watching TV and all of a sudden here comes a Pepsi commercial and, and there there's the band. It was yeah. it was it was the main thing that everybody knew about FAMU was the March in 100. And, uh, you know, we have so many great HBCU bands um, now, uh, uh, but everyone who knows anything about HBCU bands know that FAMU's band um, set the, the tone and tempo for what a lot of the bands are doing now. And so um, we're still proud of, of, of the legacy and, and how they continue to, to um, perform in excellence even to this day. So FAMU, I don't know where we would be without the Marching 100. So let me know how you feel that FAMU uh, prepared you for your professional journey. Well, interestingly enough, even though now I, I'm a full-time uh, pastor um, at, at FAMU, I was an accounting major. I uh, was in the renowned School of Business and Industry at the time, Dr. Sybil Mobley, um, who, who was a dean. Um, and again, under Dr. Mobley, um, she and the professors expected nothing but your absolute best. And what was so amazing about the School of Business and Industry in particular was that um, most of the Fortune 500 companies, they came on campus um, to, to interview. And, and so every, every week we were having corporate CEOs on the campus to, to speak to us. Um, every, I think it was every Tuesday, we had to dress um, in business attire, um, navy, a gray suit, white shirt, you know, um, red tie. You know, you, you're talking Tallahassee. It could be 95 degrees with 100 percent humidity, humidity, but you still had to dress for success. So we learned um, what to wear, what not to wear, how to groom ourselves. And we would have interviews with these um, um, CEOs from all over the nation. And, and in my case, as well as most of my classmates case, um, we didn't have to go all over the place for job interviews. The, the corporations came on campus. And I believe when I graduated from FAMU, I had at least um, a dozen or more um, solid job offers. I could work almost anywhere in the nation um, that, that I wanted to work. And I knew I was prepared because when I went to my, my first job was in Houston, Texas with an, with an oil and gas uh, company, major company. And I was hired into an accounting training program along with about 20 to 25 other accounting graduates from throughout the nation. There were three of us from HBCUs, myself from FAMU, a young lady from Southern, and a young man from Alcorn. The other 20 or so were from um, PWIs. Um, there's one young lady from University of Maryland, University of Texas, Texas A&M, University of Houston. Um, and because we're all accounting majors in this accounting training program, we were all required to take the CPA exam. And true story, I remember we all took the exam. And again, back then, you had to go to a particular location to take it. We didn't have computers and all that as we have now. And then you had to wait for weeks for those results to come back in the mail. Um, everyone else on the accounting training team received their results on a particular day. And when they came to work, everybody shared their results. And there were four parts to the CPA exam. Um, 
you have to pass at least two parts to keep those two parts. So if you only pass one, you didn't keep that one. And of course, if you pass none, you didn't have any. And so that day when they came to work, um, I think there was one young lady who had passed two parts of the exam. Everybody else passed either one or none. So this one young lady um, was the, the toast of the town, um, so to speak. And so they asked me how I did. And I honestly told them I didn't get my results. And, 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 and nobody believed me. <laughs> Um, that evening when I went home to my apartment, because at that time I just started working, had an apartment, hadn't bought a house or anything at that point. When I opened my results, I had passed all four parts. And when I went to work the next day, um, and I knew to take the, the documentation uh, with me because nobody w- would believe it. Uh, and so when I when I shared with my coworkers and upper echelon that I passed all four parts, all of a sudden I got called into so many um, executive officer office meetings and, and conference rooms because all of a sudden everybody wants to know about FAMU. Right. Tell me about FAMU. And then all of a sudden the corporation, they even up their recruiting efforts at FAMU because this this young black man from FAMU, and, and a lot of them would call it FAMU. They didn't even know how to pronounce <laughs> FAMU. Yeah. Uh, all of a sudden because of the set success that I had, they want to recruit and bring more students in. But again, I give it all to the kind of um, education and training that I received at FAMU, allowing me the opportunity to be able to sit for the CPA exam and pass all four parts the very first time. And because of that, the only time that I've ever had to take it, I'm still an active CPA even to this day. Wow. So tell me, uh, uh, how did you uh, basically get into the ministry? What was uh, the, the point in your life where you decided you were going to uh, go that direction? Well, clearly, it's nobody but the Lord. I, I felt a true calling um, from the Lord, again, having gone to school to be a CPA, worked in internal audit for different corporations. I actually had my own CPA firm for about 12 years, had grown it to being, at that time, um, the largest Black-owned CPA firm in the state of Florida. But the Lord called me into ministry, and so for a long time, I was bivocational um, maintaining and managing my firm as I also pastored a small congregation. And I remember asking the Lord, if you knew you were, you were taking me in this direction, why would you take me through the, the CPA and the business um, route? Um, but now I realize what the Lord was doing because now that I'm in full-time ministry, he's allowed me to grow what was a very small ministry of about 75 or so members to a ministry that now has well in excess of 1,000 members. We have two related corporations. We have a, a charter school. We're in our 23rd year as a K-5 charter school. Um, we also have a community development corporation where we run eight after-school programs. We have a mentoring program, a child care center. And so through our, uh, our three-corporation ministry, we employ um, about 130 people. And these other two corporations were corporations that I was able to set up myself in terms of doing the articles of incorporation, the 501c3, all the tax filings, um, the occupational licenses. Uh, These are things that I did um, for years for other businesses through my CPA practice that now I was able to employ um, in the ministry. And so it's helped me to to grow um, our church into not just being a Sunday morning worship ministry, um, but a ministry that's educating children that's providing jobs for people to have so they can they can pay their mortgage payments and their light bills and help them to build um, their own future. And so 
Um, and again, and I, I owe it all to family because of the background um, that they gave me. And so one of the things I do as a pastor also, in addition to pastoring my church, I do a lot of workshops and training for other pastors because I realize that most pastors, they, 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 they've gone to seminary, they have a theological training, but the, the back office, if you will, how to do the administrative side of a church, um, a lot of pastors don't have that. And so um, I try to utilize my skill set to help them understand that even though it's a church, it is also a business and it should be run um, in such a way. So. And, and that lead me to my next question. Uh, you wrote a book uh, entitled Pastor CEO. Uh, share with my viewers the, uh, the content of the book. Okay, great. So it, it is a very, it's a, it's a simple read. I, 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 when I wrote that book, I purposely made sure it was a simple read. It wasn't too complicated or too long because the, the concept of the book is to help pastors understand that as the senior pastor of a church, you are the CEO. Now, most pastors that I know, they love to preach. They love that Sunday morning experience. And in the black church tradition, we like to stand up and tell people to tell your neighbor X, Y, Z, and they do it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great rush. But what about the Monday through Friday experience? Yeah. And so what I try to do in the book, I try to contrast and compare being um, the CEO of a church and being the CEO of let's say a Fortune 500 company, how are they similar and how are they different? And I talk about things such as knowing the numbers. And I, and I give this tidbit real, real simply. Um, I teach pastors that a rule of thumb for churches when they're looking at borrowing money, let's say to expand, to build a fellowship hall, or even let's say a new sanctuary, uh, there's a three and a half times rule that basically says um, the maximum amount that you're able to borrow from a bank or a lending institution is approximately three and a half times your annual revenue, or in the case of a church, what we call tithes and offerings. So yeah. if your church raises $100,000 a year, um, as a rule of thumb, um, you could probably borrow up to $350,000. So if you're trying to do a million-dollar project on a $100,000 a year income level, uh, you know you're going to have to scale that project down. Right. And the reason why things like that are so important is because sometimes I'll see pastors, they go and they invest a lot of money in getting financial statements prepared by CPAs like me, only to find out that the project they're pursuing is, is far beyond their ability. And so I, I give little nuggets, little tidbits like that in, in the book to help pastors at least, um, not trying to make them become CPAs, but helping them to understand that the business side is just as vital. And in fact, in today's climate and, and, and environment, I believe what happens in a church away from Sunday morning is perhaps even more important than what happens on that Sunday because of the fact that the world is looking at us from the standpoint of how fiscally responsible we are, not just how spiritually responsible we are. So you started a community development corporation and you're, uh, carrying out a, a number of initiatives through that entity. So talk to me about some of the work you're doing in the community with your uh, Community de uh, Development Corporation. Well, through the Community Development Corporation, and we have two different corporations. We have the Community Development Corporation, and then we have the Charter School, which is a different corporation. Okay. The Charter School is just for the, the, the Charter School K-5. through We have a principal, assistant principal, guidance counselors, certified teachers, 
We own our own buses. We employ our own cafeteria workers. We we prepare our own meals. We don't. It's not fresh frozen in. We prepare everything right there. Um, maintenance workers. So we have a whole staff on the school side. But with the Community Development Corporation, uh, what we have done over the years is we provide a number of, of services, primarily focused on the youth and, and in some cases the families as well. So we operate a, a, um, a preschool, a child care center called Wayman Early Learning Academy. We also run eight different after-school programs during the school year. So we partner with eight different schools. So when, when the bell rings at the end of the day at three o'clock, we provide additional services at those school locations so that those children not only get homework assistance, but they have a safe place to go. Because many of these kids at three o'clock, they will be coming home to empty homes. And with, with crime and violence being what it is today, it, it helps those families to know um, that they have a place. And, this, and the, we, are, we partner with the city of Jacksonville so that these are free services to um, needy families. And then we extend that during the summer. In fact, we're planning right now our summer camp where we would touch a minimum of 540 um, children throughout our summer camp, a six-week, again, a free summer camp, again, to make sure our kids have a safe place to spend their summer. We also use a summer camp to make sure um, we try to reduce the, the learning loss that takes place over the summer so that our kids, most of whom are black, are black and brown, when they go back to school in, in the fall, they have retained most of their learning. Um, we also have a, a mentoring program uh, where it's primarily black men mentoring young black boys to help them understand um, what being a man is all about. And, it, and it's, so, it's so rewarding when we see young black boys um, who are able to see um, black male role models because many of them come from environments where um, they don't see that all the time. Yeah. Um, we done. We don't. We don't currently run this particular program, but at one point we ran um, um, a car wash for ex-offenders, uh, young men who've gotten out of jail or prison, can't find jobs. We would employ them and help them to learn how to come to work on time, how to take orders, how to do basic things that would then help them uh, to graduate to more meaningful employment. So, we do a number of things throughout various um, um, other related corporations, community development corporation, and the school to really better um, our community. And we're very proud of, of what we've done. At the same time, employing people to carry out those functions and that helps them to improve their own personal financial portfolio as well. You know, that's it's interesting. Uh, I have a community uh, development corporation that I started as well. And one of the things that we do is we do a uh, virtual uh summer learning uh, academy. It used to be, we started off doing it in person, but then with COVID-19 hit, we turned it into a virtual program. Uh, last year we serviced uh, almost 200 kids in 53 states, I mean 53 cities uh, across 11 states. So I'll be in touch with you because there may be some, and it's free uh, for, the, for the kids and you know, I'll be in touch and maybe we can uh, piggyback and allow some of your uh, people to participate as well because we are we are trying to uh, grow that program across the uh, the country. But awesome. we started that program e explicitly for what you described was to help reduce the summer le uh, learning deficits, and we focus on uh, uh, kids K through three uh, for that particular program. And awesome. so I want to. I, I think that's so important. For I'm sorry. No, no. Go ahead. 
I was going to say that I think that is so important, and I would encourage other churches and other pastors uh, to utilize those assets because so many churches we have we have buildings and grounds that sit virtually idle after the Sunday worship experience, and and in many cases we are in communities that can benefit from those assets being deployed um, to do after school programs, tutoring programs, mentoring programs, and so. Um, and I'd encourage all pastors to find a way to utilize uh, your campuses beyond the, the, the weekend worship experience. So, uh, Dr. Griffin, I don't want to end this program without getting the opportunity to, to, number one, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to be on the program and to talk about FAMU. But also, equally as important, I want to present you with our HBCU. Lifetime Achievement Award, and we'll be mailing this to you. And this is for your commitment to uh, historically black colleges and universities and for all that you've done to uh, empower and embed the community that you, you serve. So thank you so much for being on the show. And to my viewers, I want to thank you for watching this episode of HBCU. I'm your host, D. Brown, CEO. And remember, without you, there's no me. <laughs>